Patient No Longer is a podcast featuring leaders in healthcare who are inspiring a positive shift in the customer experience and human understanding. In this podcast, we interview people who are from all areas of healthcare that are impacting the healthcare consumer journey of care. My name is Ryan Donahue, solutions expert and strategic advisor with NRC Health. And it's a pleasure to host Patient No Longer, a podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what makes healthcare human again. Welcome back to all of our listeners of the Patient No Longer podcast. It is fantastic to have you here. I've got a really interesting guest today and a really interesting topic, something we have not covered on the Patient No Longer podcast yet, but that is about to change. I am joined today by Dr. David Lubarsky. Hello, Dr. Lubarsky. Hi, Ryan. Well, it's great to have you here. You know, you're a busy man and I'll explain why. You're Vice Chancellor of Human Health Services and Chief Executive Officer at UC Davis Health. You oversee UC Davis Health's academic, research, and clinical programs. That includes UC Davis Medical Center, which is a 725-bed, level one trauma hospital, consistently ranked among the nation's best. In fact, you've collected quite a bit of esteem for a lot of your programs. Today, we're gonna focus though specifically on sustainability. And I'm really excited about this, Dr. Lebarski, because this is a topic that I think sometimes in healthcare we tiptoe around or we try to say the right things. And it doesn't always happen that way. And I think you've got some really interesting viewpoints on this. So you've committed as an organization and frankly, as an individual to make sustainability a huge priority from top to bottom. You've committed throughout UC Davis Health Resources You've been recognized for that, part of the top 25 list, according to Practice Green Health, which measures over 1,400 hospitals and health systems on sustainability. So you back this commitment up. I want to hear more about it. So what are you doing around sustainability at UC Davis Health? There's a couple of different reasons why sustainability is so important to the University of California, UC Davis, and UC Davis Health specifically. As a state organization in a very progressive state, we are really committed to making a difference in our climate and to creating a sustainable environment for the generations that will follow us. And we've been really fortunate to be led by Dr. Michael Drake, who is the new president for the University of California, who really has a focus on amplifying sustainability efforts across our entire gigantic system. A lot of people don't know that the University of California's health system is actually the 10th largest health system in the U.S., and the uh, organization overall has a quarter million students and a quarter million employees across all of the University of California. So when we make an impact, it will make a difference because we're not only teaching the next generation about sustainability, we're modeling the behaviors that make it possible for them to take that to wherever they're going to go. And we're trying to really make a difference because healthcare organizations are some of the most important contributors, largest contributors negatively to greenhouse gas emissions. So we have a real opportunity to really wear our values on our sleeves, if you will, about how important this is. It's like taking care of pediatric patients, right? What's the point of doing that if you're going to plop them in an environment that will be inhospitable and disease causing? Well, it's so interesting. By the way, I love the way you say, you know, one of the greatest contributors, because usually the end of that sentence is something really positive, right? And I think what people miss sometimes, and I personally think it's lost sometimes on patients and consumers, is how much we impact the environment in healthcare. I mean, it is massive. 
And so that's something I know you've taken by the horns and looked at that as something to turn around. Whereas I think sometimes others look at it as, what are we going to do? You know, that's this existential crisis and we can't make enough of a difference. And being in the top 10 in size is a huge advantage to you. But we've agreed that this change can happen across the country. And it needs to because this leads to a larger issue of climate change. You've got some views around your place in this world, where you are specifically in the country. A lot of healthcare organizations, again, talk the talk on climate change, but you've actually dedicated resources and you have a unique approach here. So what is UC Davis doing to confront and combat climate change? And why should others care in the same way that you do? One, we should be patient no longer, right? We're despoiling our environment and we need to think differently. There's a great quote by, uh, I think it's Albert Einstein, said, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Mm -hmm. And so we need a different way of thinking about things. We need to be thinking about an ROI as a nonprofit organization that is about how do we provide the greatest global good to the communities and the patients that we serve with the resources at hand. And too often, healthcare organizations are focused on the next pretty building. And I understand that. I mean, I love to walk into a new practice building. Uh, physician for almost 40 years now. There's nothing like having a nice new facility, but that nice new facility has to be part of the solution, right? It can't just be building the same old thing. It has to be built to develop a mentality around sustainability. And we're undergoing a generational change at UC Davis, and we're doubling the square footage on our campus. We took over the campus in 77, we built about 3 million square feet and we'll be at 7 million square feet in the next seven years. So we're fundamentally changing the campus and every single building is going to be LEED certified. And we are really working hard to eliminate fossil fuel use across our entire 150 acre campus. We are working towards electrifying the entire campus so that we get to net zero carbon and have committed to pledges around that as well by uh, 2050. And both UN and HHS pledges. And when we say we're pledging, we're actually, we have actually people who are working on this. We have whole teams. And as a result of that, you know, we're making progress across a large amount of areas, not just building a green building, uh, but we're one of the top practice green health has ranked us in the top 10 for sustainable food procurement, water utilization. We recently changed our entire water plant. Transportation, uh, we have almost eliminated all fossil fuel internal transportation and actually have only electric buses going between the main campus and our health campus and impacts on climate. And the things like we got all of the University of California systems, not me personally, but University of California systems all got together and changed the way that they were delivering anesthesia, which is a large contributor to greenhouse gases. I'm actually an anesthesiologist by training. And even though we've known this for a long time, one anesthetic's 20 times the greenhouse gas emissions of another equivalent anesthetic. We hadn't done anything until recently to eliminate the one that was the bigger pollutant and to really lower our fresh gas flows during the course of an anesthetic, which just gets vented out into the atmosphere and carries greenhouse gases with it. We've known this literally for decades, but finally, we're actually doing something about it. And every single person listening to this podcast could turn around to their operating rooms, which are some of the biggest issues, and say to them, do that. The literature is out there about what you need to do to really cut greenhouse gas emissions. And what do you need to do to change single-use products? We returned 10 tons 
of single use products to original manufacturers so they could repurpose and repackage and re-sterilize them and use them again. And it doesn't take that much to collect it, but it's amazing the mountain of waste that every hospital and operating room contributes and the amount of blue plastic single wrap that goes into an operating room for any operation. If you can just cut down on that, we're actually gonna make a difference. If we all do that, we'll make a big difference. And the other thing I want to point out is that healthcare is late to the game. I was really proud this year when we got that award, right, for being top 25 hospital, top 10 in the U.S. for a variety of different domains. And I'm thinking, we're doing great. And I went to talk to my boss about our strategy around sustainability, which is Chancellor May. And he is also in leading UC Davis, often noted as one of the most greenest universities in the world. And we were like very proud of that, too. And we were going to talk to our boss, President Drake. And I was touting how good our health system was doing. He goes, yeah, David, but really? Because healthcare is like the worst polluter. Like, how are you doing compared to other industries? And that's something else that everybody who's on this call should think about is that, yes, we should be seeking to do things in relation to our peers, but we shouldn't just limit our peers to other health systems. We should be thinking about what the rest of the community in the world is doing to green their industries and really seek to match and meet that not just get to the top of the worst. And that's so interesting. I've often found that as well. When we look at consumer behavior, you know, comparing yourself just within healthcare, it just gets too insular. And healthcare is different. But sometimes when you look at how we attract and acquire and retain our customers versus other industries, it can be eye-popping. And so I think you make a great point on that, on sustainability as well. And just all of the changes we need to make. You've painted a beautiful picture of your organization and how you've approached it. And I love how you say it because you don't look at these 2030, 2050 as mandates or these punishing compliant things that are coming down. You look at them as goals to beat. And I think that's a completely different mindset that could do well across this nation and across this world. Let's flip it to the other side, to someone who's not a part of your organization until they come in to receive care. Let's talk about patients and people before and after their patients, right? All those consumers out there living in our communities. You talk about providing them with obviously excellent health care, quality care, safe care, but also this idea of the environment as part of their health care. And I think you integrate that in a way that's interesting. So when you talk about environmental health care that you provide at UC Davis Health, what does that mean to the consumer and to the patient? Who would experience it? Healthcare is way down the line. It's like, that's when you're sick. Mm-hmm. Wellness and prevention, right, for diseases, that's really important. But before you even get there, you have to grow up in an environment that's not contributing to future illness. And unfortunately, especially in underserved communities that have been really marginalized, placed near polluting plants or a concrete jungle with no greening of the environmental space and, and increased heat stress, as the temperatures get hotter, we're creating environments that are actually not conducive to healthy living. So we have to recognize that. And by, especially for an academic medical center, especially with a main campus that has one of the world's best environmental science divisions under their number one school of agriculture, we really can contribute to the discussion and the advocacy for appropriate urban planning and urban remediation of these negative environments that we've built, because at the end of the day, that will impact the diseases that our patients show up with, right, in the long run. And so we have an obligation as part of our community benefits plan, not to just 
increase access or do some free screening for cancer or to provide free inhalers for people with asthma, but to really begin to impact the conditions that have created those diseases in the first place. Now, we can't do that. That's civic, right? That's a civic responsibility, but we can highlight the problems so that our civic organizations do something about that in terms of both climate susceptibility and environmental dangers. It's something where healthcare has been absent from that discussion, frankly. They haven't really taken that on, but it's more of a perhaps a public health effort, but it's more than just that, right? It's about really bringing the science and the interest and the wellness of the populations we serve into focus. And it's not like people aren't listening. It's no one's talking about that. I think, again, we're in a great place as a trusted partner to sit to government and to patients to help bridge that gap. Well, and it's such an interesting thing because I think sometimes we're talking about those things. You know, I was just listening to Randy Ustra, CEO of ProMedica, talk about social determinants of health, and he includes the environmental factors in there. In fact, he sort of lays that as a foundation of why it's so tough to move these things. Because when we don't look at it foundationally, we say, well, if people are hungry, why can't we give them food? And then we should be good, right? Or if we you know, pull this lever and flip the switch. And in reality, when you talk about the environment, it's so much more vast than that. But yet I think you're not lost in that complexity. I think you're right there. You know, I love what you said about civic duty. What's interesting about that is we do often sort of self-exculpate ourselves from that duty and say, well, we're just healthcare. But other times we say, look at this amazing impact that we make and community needs, it doesn't work one way or the other. I mean, we are staples of the community, whether you are a critical access hospital in the middle of America, or you're in your situation in Northern California. And it's, it's something that we have to take seriously, no matter what. You take very seriously that not-for-profit status. I think a lot of times it's just assumed that, hey, we're not-for-profit and you know, we check that box. Um, this is a time when you know, that's drawn the ire at times from consumers and patients who are paying more than ever and saying, you know, I'm contributing so much to this financially and with my energy and with my health. What's more important than that? What am I getting back? How do you look at that outside of just consumer and patient experiences, but just your wider impact, proving it to the community and the neighborhoods you serve? What's your particular approach on that? Here's the thing. You know, we're a separately constituted entity of the state of California's government. So it's about as public as you get, right? <laughs> but nonetheless, we don't get any state money or very little to speak of. You know, 99.5% of the budget like is earned the same way that every other health system earns it. However, I think the ethic here is one of true public service. And we have an amazingly engaged student body and faculty around doing the right thing. So that does help us tremendously as well. But we also have organized ourselves to begin to address this, like I said, from a scientific and community partnership basis. So we have what's called the UC Davis Climate Adaptation Research Center, which partners with our community organizations to get community-based participation on research projects that matter to them around climate stressors. And so we're actually studying the impact of climate stressors as a health entity and its health effects. And the thing is, yeah, we get grants to do that. I mean, it's not all charity, right? You apply to the NIH or the state government to get grants to do this. There's no payback though for that, except for knowing you're doing the right thing. But of course, there really isn't any payback for healthcare in general, except for knowing you're doing the right thing, unless your leadership isn't maybe in the right business. I mean, yes, you have to make enough money to pay your bills. Yes, you have to make enough money to put some money in the bank so that you can borrow money to build the next building, right? That's the way the world works. The goal is not 
to accumulate the greatest riches. The goal is to accumulate the greatest effect for the communities and the patients that you serve. And so when I think about how are we investing the money that we get, it's one of the reasons we're building what we're building on our campus. Again, all lead certified, all net zero when they start being commissioned. And we have, like I said, about 3 million square feet under construction. But we have what's called an organization that's building for the future. What does the future community need? And what they need is a bunch more ICU beds and a partner committed to not despoiling the environment in the process, right? And it just starts at day one, the idea that we're going to save money when we make ourselves energy efficient. We're going to save money when we stop single-use packaging and keep throwing things out. You know, one of the things we're doing around food, food's one of the big things we've worked on, is about 80% of our fresh produce comes from 250 miles or less. And because we work with these farms directly, we've convinced them they don't actually have to package their goods to sustain a transcontinental journey. So we've decreased waste, we've decreased environmental spoilage, and we're decreasing transportation costs and energy utilization. There's this great story about how tomatoes used to be grown in Northern California, you know, shrink-wrapped, shipped on a truck to Ohio, put on a different truck, and sent back to Northern California using refrigeration and we just get the tomatoes from the farm, right? And all of that extra energy expenditure is eliminated. And we're really working on sustainable and regenerative farming as part of what we're doing. And when you're talking about feeding 500,000 people a day who are employees and students, three meals a day often, and then you throw in patients and we're seeing tens of thousands of patients every single day also who eat at our facilities and visitors and stuff, Actually, you can start to make a difference in the environment if all those people are seeing a reduced claim on environmental resources. It's so fascinating. The tomato example is such a great, just common sense example where you've been able to cut through these sort of didactic, programmatic, we have to do it in a certain way. Because we know, as the Albert Einstein quote, I love that quote, that we can't continue to do that, right? It's We've got to break ourselves out of that and have a mental shift. I remember years ago, touring Henry Ford, in the Detroit area. And, you know, they'd always had this fantastic kind of farming program in this greenhouse, but it was always behind the scenes. And so they made it part of their campus and they brought people in to do cooking classes. They actually had visitors, as you referenced, who would come in just to eat and they didn't have anyone to visit. They were there to eat and enjoy because we could be a great source of healthy food. And, and of course that absolutely fits what we want to do in healthcare. But that brings me to a point, and I often come at things from this consumer angle, and the tough consumer test is you're doing all these wonderful things. You're well-versed inside out on the work that you're doing. Your employees are seeing it. Your patients are experiencing it. But what about the larger community? You know, consumers have short attention spans. Sometimes when we ask them, here's a brand, what do they mean to you? You hear the crickets, right? Or it's one thing, or it's something you were known for 25 years ago you can't shake. Have you been able to translate this into brand capital and into building equity in the minds of consumers that, hey, even when they're not in a gown receiving care from UC Davis Health, they are fully aware and, and experiencing the work that you're doing here? I'm very proud to say the answer is yes. We have really made a major push over the last five years to make sure not to do better, but to make sure everybody knows how much better we're doing for our community, right? We've always had engaged and, and interested volunteers. 
But we've really amplified our efforts, a true anchor institution mission philosophy of like, we're going to procure locally, source locally, hire locally, volunteer locally, so that the community always sees us. We recently had Secretary Becerra come visit us and laud the efforts of setting up uh, community-based vaccination centers and mobile van education and vaccination centers, uh, treating the uh, migrant farming community all around here. We're not making any money on that, but we are getting a lot of positive community notice of that. We paired with our local Black churches and to uh, work on our African-American community's vaccination rates and testing rates prior to that. And we're getting an award from the uh, California Black Chamber of Commerce actually today. And we're very proud of those things because we're kind of veering a little bit into equity. But the whole point is that when you wear your value on your sleeve these days, it actually is what engages the people who will buy your products. And this is not about healthcare. When Nike put Colin Kaepernick on their main mm-hmm. image, um, they didn't do it. I, well, I, I shouldn't be jaded. I'm, they did it because it was calculated that that support would actually translate into more shoe sales. We're not quite that calculated. We really believe in equity and climate change and environmental stewardship. But it is also true that people now choose organizations that they trust and with whom they do business, not only for the actual business they're doing, you know, we're always ranked the number one hospital in the Sacramento region. So we're not going to get anywhere with that, but we didn't really have the community's incredible support that we enjoy now. And it's really changed our net promoter scores. It has markedly changed our brand uh, ranking. We were recently in a survey commissioned by the American Hospital Association of uh, 220 largest uh, healthcare brands. UC Davis was number four in the United States. And we weren't that way before. And the reason for that is that everybody around knows who we are and knows what we stand for besides just being the level one trauma center for more than half of California. That is also true. We do that. And we're an outlier in terms of major morbidity and mortality following major trauma and an outlier in a like doing so good, like really one of the best in the the United States. But they know that. That wasn't making them come in to get their screening colonoscopy or their flu shot or whatever. The fact that we are actually impacting our community in a positive way, I believe, is creating the type of bonds that will last a generation and will make people think always, I trust UC Davis Health to be a community partner and a great place to go for my health care. Well, and it's fantastic because, you know, you're looking at that recognition as you're not resting on your laurels and saying, okay, we've made it. It's really just more fuel to the fire of continuing to advance. And, you know, those are proof points, but they're not the end. And the beautiful thing about that on branding is consumers can remember more than one thing about a brand. I think sometimes when people are in your position or, or any position where they're sort of known for something, what, whatever that might be, quality, safety, just the location, they're worried that they pivot off of that and they abandon it. And you don't. And so you've been able to build and stack that sort of value. But let me ask you this. You talked about equity. Let's dig into that. Let's talk about something that really made equity hard to look away from. It really exposed it. And that was a little something called COVID-19. I've got to ask you about COVID, especially being in California, where there were some unique circumstances compared to the rest of the country. How did it affect you as the leader going through COVID in the position you were in and any lessons that you've sort of been able to come out the other side with? If you have a horrible tragedy that kills a million people and you learn nothing from it, 
you shouldn't be a leader, right? Sometimes people say a silver line. I never use that term. There's no such thing as a silver lining to a disease process that killed a, a million of our fellow citizens. However, there is much that we learned and we will perhaps be a better society moving into the future because the harsh light of inequitable health outcomes, including the environments in which our underserved communities live, had a harsh light shown upon it during the COVID era. You couldn't turn away from, unless you were blind, you couldn't avoid seeing that what was happening was neither fair nor proportionate. And you know, a lot of it has to do with underlying diseases, obesity, diabetes, severe obstructive lung disease, and social determinants of health that didn't allow people to pursue the treatment of those chronic diseases in the same way that richer communities could. So I think that that was really important to learn from. And if you just stop there and say, well, okay, we got new education modes. We figured out that we needed to tap not into perhaps government officials saying that you need to get your shot, but we needed to have local community leaders do that or religious leaders in the community do that, which we did find out was certainly true, that you needed to find people that the community trusted and that you also had to earn the community's trust because those health disparities didn't occur overnight. And so they don't always trust the health systems to be telling them the truth. So working with and through our community partners, we learned was so effective in trying to begin to address health inequities. And we're going to continue to do that with President Biden's moonshot to uh, have cancer mortality. We are really thinking about, you know, what are we doing to promote screening? And everybody now has Medicaid in the state of California, right? Uh, Starting January 1st, every, even all undocumented immigrants and all poor people and all children, everybody will have Medi-Cal if they don't have their own insurance. And that's actually a good thing because now everybody has access not everybody has care. And so figuring out how to reach those communities, how to get those communities to want to access the system, that was part of what our discussion with HHS Secretary Becerra was about. How do we engage the Latino community so that they want to come in and get their health screenings and their vaccinations and the care that is preventative for the development of future diseases? We haven't done a really good job with that. We think we can be part of that. And part of that is the digital transformation. And it occurs in English doesn't really occur in Spanish or Creole or Vietnamese or Ukrainian, right? There are all these different communities, Afghan, we had a lot of Afghan immigrants when the U.S. left. You know, what are we doing to reach out to these communities? We're very proud also to be the recipient of a congressional earmark from our Congresswoman, uh, Doris Natsui, to develop a digital equity program so that we can start to take all of these digital tools and provide both care navigation and educational materials in the languages of the people that we're trying to serve. So many people, especially in California, don't have English as their first language. And how do we get tools like iPads and high-speed internet into those people's homes? And how do we work with the other existing infrastructure, cable companies, device manufacturers, you know, so that we're not just creating another problem as we undergo a digital transformation, right? We've seen we left underserved communities behind before in terms of both access and people often got equal treatment, but they did not have equitable outcomes because we didn't take into account all the other factors. We don't want to repeat or exacerbate that when we undergo the digital transformation that we are going to see in this country. Let's stay on that because I think that that's such an important point that you make on equity that now in California, everyone has access, but they don't always have care. And we know that that's true across the country. Even people with insurance 
who don't understand how that insurance works or still very, very concerned about going in and getting care and what that will mean financially and just to your health and so on. And the stakes seem so high. Now, tying back into COVID, you know, it's so interesting because as my co-author of the Patient No Longer book, Dr. Stephen Clasco says, we had about 10 years of digital advancement in 10 weeks in the spring of 2020. We had to do it. And it was because it was a response to a global pandemic. Now that that's cooled a bit, you've seen telehealth numbers come down. We see it across our surveys, across the country. Market Insight shows that you know, telehealth issues has come back down, although it's still higher than it was pre-COVID. But one thing that comes up is you know, a lot of physicians, and you're a physician, so I got to ask you this, saying, I want to see my patients back in person. The telehealth thing was great, but I want to see them back in person. How do you confront that? Because on one hand, you know, the physical experience is something a lot of patients are yearning to come back to and need in order to get great care. But on the other hand, we can't abandon what we did digitally and let that drop off. We've got to continue doing that because of the access issues you highlight. How do you tackle that sort of knot in the digital advancement of healthcare? I follow these numbers very closely. For us, you know, we didn't build a whole lot of new clinics, but we're seeing about 20% more patients a day. And that's because we're doing almost 20% virtual visits still every day. And, you know, we tackled that from the physician standpoint in two ways. First of all, we made it absolutely financially neutral for the physicians to choose one or the other that they could choose, but there was no disincentive at all to continue virtual health. I think that's really important. People respond to financial incentives. Even if it's sotto voce, you're not really talking about it. They go, oh yeah, I probably should see that person. The second thing is we've made a really big push about that virtual health is actually an equity issue. And by that, I mean, we talked about we could create a larger equity divide because there are haves and have nots for internet and devices. But even more importantly, there's people who have or don't have paid time off. And so, and that's always the underserved and the poor. And, you know, if you schedule a virtual visit for 30 minutes, that's a lot different than trying to get a day off when you don't have a day off. When you live paycheck to paycheck, not being able to put food on the table because you had to go see your doctor and wait in the, in, the, in the waiting room, you know, drive there, wait in the waiting room, get seen for 20 minutes, leave, drive back. It's not possible. You might even lose your job. So people don't access the care that they actually have insurance for. By having virtual health as a really functioning option, it is an equity issue. It is an, it is an equity play. And it also takes care of caregivers moms who have kids at home and can't really have no one to leave them with or they don't have the money to leave them with anyone. Children who take care of aged parents and they can't just take off days from work every time their sick mom or dad or, or someone who's maybe suffering some mental decline needs a little help, right? A virtual visit goes a tremendous way to allowing those people who cannot afford literally to take the time off to go see the doctor or drag their loved one in to see the doctor to get the care that they need. So I really believe that our digital transformation is woven into concerns around equity because we believe that there, that there is actually a solve for that wound. Well, and it's fascinating too. Your approach reminds me across the country, this is true. I mean, we had consumers in Eastern Montana saying, I don't want to drive two hours, right? It's, it's not about California traffic. Uh, I might not see another car on the road, but I don't want to make that drive if it can be addressed here. We had someone in their 80s in Colorado say, you know, it was so fantastic to have the physician interface with me in this way. She was comfortable. She had an iPad, she would FaceTime her grandkids, and she could work that virtual appointment. And in fact, she called it the return of the house call 
because she remembered back when the doctor came in with the black bag and would visit with her on the couch and those days went away. And so being able to bridge that divide, the other thing that I would point out is when someone has a positive virtual experience, they're also very well and open to a physical experience. And sometimes it's that virtual experience that gets them on the track to come in for care if they need to seek it. Whereas if they don't have that half step, maybe they're not coming in for care and they're continuing to defer. Right. No, 100% true. And the other thing that health systems, because I know there's a health system audience don't understand, this is actually a very positive financial move for the health system. You may say, well, I get paid a little less for virtual care. And I know that Medicare is talking about reducing the pay really here because you know there's not as many resources used. However, the patients that you do see, so if you're busy, if you have an empty clinic, it's different. But most mm-hmm. people are pretty busy these days. Yeah. And if you're trying to see the patients who most need to see you, they're also the same patients who need the most ancillary treatments, whether it's labs or MRIs or biopsies, and you're increasing access to care at the same time. For a little while during COVID, we had a mandatory e-consult for every dermatologic referral. Well, it turned out that asynchronously and using pictures, you can actually make a diagnosis way more than half of the time and get the patient almost in real time, the steroid cream or the antibiotic or whatever it is they needed, right, for their rash. But the patients who came in They're the ones who needed skin scrapings and phototherapy and maybe a biopsy. And so the yield, if you will, on each patient that was actually seen in the facility went up, but the convenience factor went up even more for all the patients who didn't have to come in. So everybody won. The total cost of care went down because we weren't billing facility fees. And, and, you know, when people show up in your office, they're like, oh yeah, maybe I should scrape that. Maybe you should do it. You don't, you know, you don't need, but they're there. So you do it. I think it increases the efficiency of care. It may lower the total cost of care. It markedly increases the convenience of care. It contributes to climate change efforts because people are not driving back and forth needlessly. And access to care improved. We went from a 42-day wait to see a dermatologist down to less than 10 days for those people who needed to get in. So now you've said, because you don't know which ones need to get in if you're not doing appropriate triage. So in terms of equity, again, All these people who might not have paid time off didn't have to take a day off to see a dermatologist because they got their diagnosis having just gone to their primary care doctor. It's a win, 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 win across the board. And if you constantly look for that, you will find that equity efforts and community outreach and value, publicizing the values that you're pursuing and environmental stewardship, they actually don't cost you anything. They're probably good for business. That's such an important point to highlight because I think people use costs as a bit of a, an excuse there or a bit of a shield to not look into it further. The other thing you hear sometimes is our desire to compete and to compete with other health systems. And we don't always reflect inward on how we could do things differently in that way. You've got a mantra that you used even before COVID, and I think it came in handy during COVID and still does, but it's the idea of complete, not compete. And talk to me a little bit about that approach and how that affects UC Davis Health and also other hospitals and health systems in your area. Right. There are four major health systems here, Kaiser, Dignity, Sutter, and UC. And when I was first coming here, people said, oh, there's no room for any growth. You guys, it's dog eat dog, competition, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, why would tertiary quaternary center that's the level one trauma center for 33 of 58 counties right? And has a comprehensive cancer center from the NCI. And we're the only one in the region that has that. Why, why would we be competing 
to do an inguinal hernia repair. That's like using an aircraft carrier to shuttle commuters from one end of San Francisco Bay to the other. I mean, yes, you can do that, but that is not its highest purpose. And that is kind of what we are. We're like an aircraft carrier, nuclear power. And I looked around and I said, why are we not doing what we are designed to do? So I set out to partner with anybody who would partner. And we've partnered with almost everybody in the region, Adventist being another group that isn't in Sacramento, but around Sacramento. And we upskilled the care that community hospitals could give all around the region in terms of NICU care, cancer care, transplant care, and then pulmonary ICU care during COVID times. We didn't try and get every patient. We actually tried to keep patients out of our hospital. And I tried to strip our hospital of everything that didn't need to be inside of an inpatient unit and, and expanded dramatically our outpatient offerings. And the funny thing happened on the way to the forum, which is our hospital got fuller, not less mm. full, because we were no longer a threat to our community partners. We were no longer doing unnecessary things and not being available to do the necessary things, which meant that patients would leave our area in order to get the really complex care. It was not necessary, but so we figured out what our place in the healthcare ecosystem should be. And we sought to pursue that. And we didn't do that just by ourselves. Like I said, we actually have two or three NICUs around the area where we said, let's, we don't want you to send us any more patients. We just want you to send us the ones that really need us. And we went from having a half full NICU to having a NICU that's 120% full every single day. Because once people said, oh, they're not trying to steal our patients. And since that hospital had a better, higher functioning neonatal ICU, more patients stayed in town for their complex deliveries. And then we augmented their maternal fetal medicine programs at the same time so that they could take great care pre and postpartum of those high-risk moms and only send the stuff to us. And then, oh, our deliveries doubled too. We tried to keep patients out. And by doing that, we became a more trusted partner and more patients came in. It's counterintuitive, but it wasn't to me because I understood the position that we were in this ecosystem. And I would say to my community partners, the future is going to be different. I mean, if you look at what's going on, well, Kaiser's building hospitals without beds. And so are we, because we believe that the, you know, you're only going to go into a hospital when you really need high level care. You really don't want to drive down to Sacramento if you live 40 minutes outside to get an MRI or a lab test, right? You want to do that in your own community. So figuring out what can be placed in the community and what needs to occur in a hospital environment because of complexity or rare technology or expensive technology, that's the future of healthcare writ large. And what's the place that community hospitals will play is I think that they're going to undergo a metamorphosis away from beds to being a way station for patients leaving super high acuity areas like tertiary quaternary center, kind of way station on the way home. And then really serving as the local extension, providing all those hospital services without necessarily a lot of hospital beds in the future. Once you wrestle away that needless competitive mindset, it just unlocks so many possibilities. When you do have a full hospital tower under that mindset, it's all people who need that level of care. And that's beautiful. And patients don't want to go there if they don't need to go there. In fact, you're reminding me of one of the things we asked consumers a few years ago as health systems are growing. We said, you know, they're growing and getting larger and there's mergers. And what do you want from these growing entities in your community? One of the main things they said is we want them to not compete with each other. We want them to collaborate, work together. And you've done a fantastic job with that. Of course, this takes more than you and more than your community. It takes the whole country. So I've got 
One more big picture question for you as we look at the entire U.S. We don't all agree politically. I know that doesn't shock you. And so some <laughs> that's, people not- be, that's my most profound thought of the day. There's people listening to this. There's people living in communities where maybe they're very similar to where you are in California. Maybe they're very different. And so in those communities that are deep blue or deep red, we see all kinds of ideas just get shredded by those political differences. If someone's listening and saying, I want to do some of these things at my health system or my local hospital, but I'm in a different political environment, what's the advice or a bit of coaching or just any little tip or trick that you would offer them so that they could make a difference as well? Here's the funny thing. There's a lot of political differences. But when you take people and you see your fellow human beings live in conditions that you would not want to live in, the amazing universality of compassion is there. That's the funny part. How we treat our other human beings in person transcends politics. So number one is bringing across the political spectrum, rural people who may vote for Donald Trump and underserved uh, communities that may vote for Joe Biden, actually, who are, if there are people in those communities suffering, there is no lack of compassion towards all. So I'm very encouraged by that. And I think I would focus on that, your healthcare system, right? So the fact that, you know, I always say that just because someone is poor or someone lives in a rural area doesn't mean they love their mother less or care less about the future of their child, right? They don't. And we can all relate to that. So I think bringing it down to a personal level is important. The other thing is there are some buzzwords, right? Some people don't, which is hard for me to believe, believe in climate change, but there are some people who don't believe in climate change. And I'm like, okay. And they're worried about what do remedies for climate change mean to the fossil fuel industry? There's a large segment of the United States, coal, oil, gas, that are sort of the recipients of change and perhaps will hurt the businesses there. And so you can understand the resistance. But no one could really ever argue with the fact that communities should at least have a safe, shady place to rest and to walk if you want to promote healthy lifestyles. No one can really argue with the fact that we ought to stop sending tons of waste to our landfills because we're unnecessarily using single-use items. One of the things we did in our cafeteria was we got rid of plastic-wrapped forks. Now, it's all recyclable material, and they're dispensed one at a time via a non-wrapped dispenser, a total right elimination of waste. Nobody is going to argue with making inroads around that or serving fresher foods or decreasing the need. Convenience equals climate sustainability. So if you make your health system much more convenient through whether it's virtual visits, care by exception, or just local access to commonly used services, you are actually helping the climate. You don't have to say you're helping the climate. You don't have to throw it in people's faces. But eventually, people come to realize that I think the world, and especially the United States, is coming to grips. You just have to look at the severity of our hurricanes and the wildfires of We study that and popularize our findings around what are the health impacts of all of this. It's very real and it's very close to home. So I think starting now, you don't have to start with saying we're we're fixing the climate. Say we're helping our environment stay cleaner. And the point of agreement that we can make when we take those blinders off and depoliticize some of these things that should have never been politicized in the first place. I think you make such a passionate case for that because you're so tied to the issues. I want to ask you more. I think we could go deep dive into any one of these branches on the tree of sustainability and climate change. And just, I think the responsibility that you shoulder so gracefully in advancing this movement, but I've got one last put you on the spot question to close us out. 
What's one piece of advice? You are you starting your career. There's someone out there somewhere, Dr. Lebarski, who is starting their career, maybe as a physician, and they're going to end up as a CEO, and you're in an elevator with them. What's a tidbit, piece of advice, something to put some wind in their sails as they start their journey? I would say to find your dharma, right? Which is that thing which really excites you that you're good at and you're really passionate about and really means something to you and to the world you hope that would make you proud for pursuing. If you do that, you will be successful. And if you just pursue that North Star of what really matters to you, then you'll have a great career. And then the more practical side of that, so you need to find something and you really want it to be something your boss is bad at. I grew up in a family where my mom was an accountant, right? And super good at math and, and arbitrage. And I learned about that when I was a kid, right? And it wasn't a, for a long time before I got my MBA. But when I went to be an academic anesthesiologist, I realized there was no one in the entire department who knew how to bill and understood the rev cycle. And my boss, who was an amazing researcher, said, I don't really know that much about the finance part of this. Help me out. And it was something that I really enjoyed doing because I got the money into the organization to do more NIH-funded research. That's what he wanted. But to get from here to there, there had to be some resources. And so find out something your boss is not really great at, become great at it. And that is a surefire pathway to a promotion. I love that. That is fantastic advice. And I ask every guest that, but I'm not surprised that you had a completely unique and very valuable answer there. So Dr. Lebarski, the work you're doing at UC Davis Health is fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate this and appreciate the ideas you're sharing with us and look forward to continuing the conversation with you in the future. Ryan, thank you for the conversation. I really enjoyed being here. Well, fantastic. And thank you all of our listeners out there. We will put more information on what UC Davis Health is doing in the description. Be sure to click on those links. Always happy to share those ideas with anyone and everyone so we can make the world a better place. That's something we agree on. So thank you so much. And we'll close it out for today. And we will talk to you next time on the Patient No Longer podcast.